Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, uh, as Nathan said sarcastically in last service, he said more, I am old, right? Old, I get it. I'm out of touch, irrelevant, offer nothing to society anymore, bad knees, the whole thing. I get it. Um, get my hair cut, super cuts, no big deal. Um, it's cheap. All right, so uh, I do have the Word of God, and it is relevant and is powerful, and because of my advanced age, I might not get much longer with you guys. So we're going to jump into James, and we're finishing the book of James. We're in chapter 5 of James. If I go to don't let Nathan be in charge, all right? He's too young and too gorgeous, and he'll distract from the glory of God. All right, James chapter 5 is where we're going. We're landing this book. Um, If this is your first week... Praise God. I love that you're here. Um, We have been walking through the book of James literally this entire semester. Um, So we started chapter one, verse one, and been walking through this entire book uh, of James. That's five chapters. We've been through a hundred verses, and then uh, today we will finish the final eight. There are a hundred and eight, in case you're ever playing trivia one day. There's a hundred and eight verses in the book of James, and so we're going to wrap up the final eight uh, today. Um, Really, this whole book has been about the idea of faith without works, right? Without action, your belief, your faith without action, James says in James 2.26 is dead, right? Like it's dead, it's, it's worthless, right? This book is about every response, right? That we approach with faith to anything in our life um, because of the gospel, it should produce a really radically different result um, than the way the world would condition us to respond to, to anything, to persecution, to trials, to all kinds of things. Um, this book sets that up. And the reality is that James is going to talk a lot about and has talked a lot about these real practical action steps, right? But they all come from because you believe this Now do this and live this way. And things like, here's how we interact with trials. Here's how you interact with the poor. Here's um, what you do to pursue God's will for your life. Uh, Here's how to communicate well and and how to watch watch your tongue um, when you're communicating. All these really practical things, all tied from belief. And let me illustrate it this way, because that is um, so much of what the Christian life is. It is faith being manifested, being lived out in our life. One of the most clear ways you can see this is dating, right? I, um, when I was dating Danielle, so Danielle is my wife now, when I was dating her, I believed these things about her. The more I got to know her, I believed these things about her, like she's beautiful and like she's out of my league and like I don't want to not date her and all of these things that I was like, man, she's worth this. I mean, like what? And so all of a sudden it changed action, right? I'm I'm now spending money that I didn't have, right? Driving this action. I'm now showering more than I used to shower when I just lived with a bunch of dudes. And so all of these things, um, one, one uh, thing that is just wild um, that happened was um, we were dating. It was 2000, I think it was 2005. And um, it's about to take a sharp turn. So just hang with me. Uh, her grandfather died, sad, 
Ah, collective ah. Oh, yeah, it's sad. Um, and uh, her grandfather died, and we were dating. I was just a boyfriend, and uh, her grandfather was just a legend, just a, a stud of a guy, had a crazy, incredible life, all this stuff, and, and his health had been kind of bad. He passed away, and so I'm just a boyfriend trying to navigate, like, all right, what's my role right now? want to comfort, want to, you know, and, um, and so at the hospital after he had passed away, I'm kind of there with the family and her sweet, amazing grandmother who'd been married to this man for, you know, just their entire marriage, this incredible decade, decade, decade-long marriage. Um, maybe 30 or 40 or 80, I don't know how many, she was old, hundreds of years of marriage. <laughs> she's obviously wrecked with grief, rightfully so. And she's like, we're going to the funeral home with the body. We're not, I'm not leaving my husband's side, which makes sense. Um, so we go to the funeral home and, and they prepare the body and all that kind of stuff. The funeral is going to be two or three days later. And, you know, they prepare the body. She just stays at the funeral home. So we're all kind of there grieving together. And again, I'm just the boyfriend, right? I'm just kind of the boyfriend in the back, you know, seeing if they need anything. And then it turned into, um, she's not leaving. She's not leaving the funeral home. And so his body is kind of prepared now, and he's in his suit, and he's kind of out on a display table in this back room, um, her grandfather's dead body. And the grandmother is like, I'm not leaving. And the funeral director is like, well, she can sleep here if she wants, if somebody will stay with her. And then everybody looked to me the boyfriend, who has zero responsibility and no real life outside of dating Danielle at the time. And so they were like, Ben, you can stay. And so, right, my belief in Danielle, right, this isn't my feelings, ended up having me sleep on the floor of a funeral home with the dead body of my girlfriend's grand grandfather, right? And so here's the situation. Her grandmother slept here on the couch, and then grandfather's dead body here, and then Ben on the floor here, right? And then about every 45 minutes, her sweet grandmother would get up and walk over to the body and hold it and weep. And then I would get up and I would pet her back and then walk her back to the couch and lay back down in between her grandmother and her grandfather's dead body. <clears throat> Weird, right? Um, that's not a normal thing most people do. So if you're, by the way, if you're a girl and you're dating a guy and you're like, oh, this new standard has been set would you sleep with a corpse for me? Um, don't do that. Don't be that. Don't be that girlfriend. Um, <clears throat> but here's, here's where I'm going with that. <clears throat> because of what I believed about Danielle, right? We were dating. And, and that was not emotion, right? That wasn't like, oh, my feelings for Danielle want me to sleep on the floor of a morgue. That's not how that worked. What was happening was, was what I believed about this girl is worth it right? My faith in being like, this girl is 100% worth th that kind of really bizarre evening in my bizarre night of my life. Totally worth it because my belief then produced an action to say, cool, this was, I didn't see that one coming, but that's an obedient step to the belief of she is 100% worth it. So, so, and that's just a dating relationship, right? God's word is telling us who we are, who God is, it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we believe it. What it says about a relationship that we have access to, to our creator, that you are designed to have access to, should drive action, should drive radical action, should drive lifestyles and, and, and decisions that the world would look at and be like, that's crazy, why would you do that? And the answer being, if it's true, because I believe it's worth it. Because I believe it's true. 
because I believe this is how I've designed, because I believe in God's word. All of those things drive action, and that's what James is, right? James is a book of action. So even in these last eight verses, it's going to be a sermon of uh, just kind of a scatter shot of James's final words, saying this and that and this, and don't forget about this and pray with this. He's going to talk about prayer and healing and community and 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 wandering away from the faith and all of those things, because this is James basically sprinkling a whole bunch of action that comes from. Um, this faith. And, and one of the things that we see about faith that we believe, that it will create an action step directed and informed by our belief, is that there's no neutral, right? The action steps that we take, right? Faith producing action, there's no neutral in the Christian life. I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the, the biggest traps that Christians fall into, is thinking, well, maybe I'm not taking a lot of action steps, maybe I'm not taking a lot of steps in faith forward. Maybe my, my Christian walk isn't necessarily moving forward, but I don't feel like I'm stepping backwards. I'm just kind of neutral, or I'm just kind of my, my spiritual walk, my faith journey is kind of plateaued in this season. I think that is a lie. I don't think, I think that is a, a strategy of the enemy, if that's even a thing, right? I think, I think the idea that we can just plateau the Christian life isn't seen in Scripture, we are either walking towards him or we are drifting away from him. And if we think, well, I'm just plateauing, what will happen is that plateau season, whether it's weeks or months or years, at some point you'll wake up and realize, wait, I haven't been in neutral. I haven't been plateauing. I have been drifting further and further away. That's how God has designed this walk and this relationship. And so um, that's important as we jump into this. He We're going to hit these final eight verses. He's going to start with three questions, right? The questions he's going to ask is, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you cheerful? And is anyone among you sick? So let's get after it. Just this first verse 13 is going to answer these three questions, at least two of them in one verse, from a perspective of one who has put their faith fully in Jesus. So verse 13 of chapter 5, James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We're going to stop right there. And and you can see real concisely, James, even in just one verse, is already asking and answering these. He's asking the question, are you suffering? And he's answering it very concisely, pray. Right? When things are hard, we have two options, right? We can take those things to God or we cannot take those things to God, right? So those are two options that we're going to have in relationship to hard things, suffering in our life in context with with um, our relationship with God. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, God tells us to call upon me in your day of trouble. Right? God, our creator, tells us as his creation to call upon him. He, it's not going to trouble him. He has designed this relationship to work in a way to say, call upon me. And yet so often, that is not my first reaction. Right? When I am suffering, when things are hard, my knee-jerk reaction so often is not to bring it to God. And there's several reasons that maybe that's true for you, or at least at times that's true for you. One of them is maybe self-reliance. Right? When things are hard, maybe you say, man, that's just not my, I'm not, I'm not the one who's going to go ask for help. Certainly I'm not going to go to God for help. I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to be reliant. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out and grip my teeth and solve this problem myself. And so see, there is a lack of faith that's going to lead to a lack of action because the faith step would be, do I believe the obedient thing to do is to not walk in self-reliance? 
do I believe that the mature Christian thing is actually to be dependent on the Lord? And, and the depth at which I believe that, right, the faith that which I believe that is going to produce action. But if I'm like, ah, no, I don't really believe that I need to be dependent. I think I got this on my own. If my faith is in myself and not God's word or who God is, well, then sure, I'm not going to take action. I'm not going to bring him the hard things in my life because I'm going to be self-reliant. Another hurdle to bringing him hard things is going to be real reasonably frustration. And here's what I mean by that. If you're going through something hard or have been through something hard and you've got suffering in your life, there's a chance that you then are thinking through the idea of, okay, well, God is sovereign, God is in control, and he allowed me to go through this suffering. And if you're hurting and you're experiencing really hard things, I I totally understand there's gonna be a lot of us that then get stuck in this place of frustration saying, God, it's your fault that I am suffering. So why would I take this from you? God, you allowed this to happen. And so, so often, the command to to take these hard things to God, right? They get handicapped because I don't know that I trust God. Again, a a, a lack of faith. Valid, totally valid when we run into those hurdles, when we've experienced hard pain. But the question it begs in my heart is, do I do I really believe, specifically for that one, do I believe God is good? Right? Even when hard things are happening, even though horrible stuff, even though this happened and, and God is in control and he allowed that to happen, I, the question is, can I still trust that he's good? And the depth at which I can answer that will be the depth at which I can be obedient to say, I'm going to take this suffering to God. I'm not going to stiff arm him. Because I still believe, even though I don't understand why, I still believe, God, you're good. A third way that we don't, a third reason we don't take um, our hard stuff, our suffering to God, is because of shame, right? It's less outside suffering and more of, man, I know the mistakes that I made are my fault. And so my suffering is very much because I keep stepping in the same sin that I keep feeling convicted by and I keep returning to that or I'm, I'm stuck and I just feel the shame and so I don't want to go to God with that. I've already gone to God and I've asked and then I, here I am again and I'm stuck in it again and, and so so often we stiff arm going to God with our suffering because we know our suffering is self-induced and, and we, we believe this. I do this all the time. I got to get myself cleaned up. I got to get myself cleaned up and then I can kind of take my troubles to God. But I can't, I can't come fully messy to God because it's just embarrassing. Because here I am again, God. Same thing, same cycle. So do I believe that he's gracious? Do I believe his grace will run out? Do I believe he needs me to clean myself up? All of these beliefs and faith drive our obedience to action. And the last one is maybe just uncertainty, right? Maybe you don't take your suffering to God um, because, because that's just never been something you grew up with, right? That's never been a part of, of your, you know, some of us maybe grew up in the church and did that and you heard this and it was kind of a consistent thing. And some of us maybe in this room are like, man, that wasn't my lifestyle. Like I didn't grow up praying and having this modeled for me of what it looks like to take my sufferings down. So it really is just out of a place of like, man, I don't don't even know what that looks like. I I never grew up praying and and approaching God through prayer with hard stuff. And so for for you, it's will you just take that baby step of of, of obedience 
even when you're like, I'm not sure if I'm even doing this right. Right, how do I take this to God? And it, whenever you guys have kids, um, one of the things that you hear about kids, there's different phases, right? You've got the crawler, and then you've got the toddler walker, but there's a stage between the crawler, and then it's, oh, yep, he's pulling up, or oh, yep, she's pulling up. And that doesn't mean like pulling up like in the wreck. That means they go from crawling to like up on the coffee table, and they climb up, and now they're balancing on a coffee table or on a chair, and they're standing. And it's a whole phase in infant development before they start walking. And the transition between them pulling up and standing there and them walking is this transition of faith for them, right? It's little babies who have pulled up, and it's like, I've never taken a step before, but I kind of want to. Seems more efficient. And so then they take a step or two, and they aren't very good at it at first. And I've never heard a parent be like, idiot, you only took three steps, right? You don't hear that. You hear parents snap pictures. They took three steps and fell, and they're like, wow, that's huge, and our Heavenly Father, if, if this whole concept of prayer and personal relationship and bringing things to God is this foreign thing, you didn't grow up with it, this wasn't, this wasn't the Kool-Aid you were drinking growing up, and all of a sudden now it's like there's this relationship, I don't know what that prayer, just start praying. And even start, I don't even know if I'm doing this right. Your Father will meet you there. He'll meet you there in just those obedient steps. Okay, so we see this call to take our hard things. So I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that when things get hard, go to God with it. Okay, when things get hard in your life, there's all kinds of reasons we wouldn't, right? Our shame, our frustration towards God, our, our just uncertainty of how to do that ourselves, even just our self-reliance that we need to change our minds about and say, God, I'm going to believe your word and I'm going to take those hard things to you. The second question James asks is not just is anyone suffering, he then says in verse 13, is anyone cheerful? And he answers it, let him sing praise. And again, often this is not my first reaction, right? My first reaction is not to praise him when things are good so often. But earlier in James, we saw if one of the very first weeks we were preaching it back in January, in verse 17 of chapter 1, it says this. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, so James is telling us through God's word that all of the good gifts in our life, right? All of the good things, the relationships that are good, the, the blessings, the talents, all of the good gifts are from our Father, they are from God. And he's saying then in every season, take those and give him credit and give him praise. He's telling us in seasons of trials, take them to God, hard things, and seasons of successes. And oftentimes, we do this all the time, we, you know, will pray before a meal, right? Like it's kind of, if, if you, you know, do that, like maybe you pray before a meal every once in a while, but how often are we like, man, praise God for that meal. I'm gonna stop, praise God. You know, maybe on the front end, God, would you pray to, bless his food to nourish our bodies and do this. But then on the back end, we're like, God, thank you. That was amazing. Thank you for making taste buds. Thank you for doing that. All of that, like, we don't do that. Or road trips. My family, when we would go take road trips, we'd pray on the front end. I don't ever remember praising God at the end of our road trip when we pulled into the parking lot. Or, or trips, like, God, would you just keep us safe? And then when we get there, we don't. Or, or tests, or finals, or huge projects that are due. Right? We pray on the front end, oh, God, I need you, I need you, I need you, please. God, would you show up? Would you give me peace? Would you give me clarity of mind? We pray on the front end. That's good, right? There's nothing wrong with that. 
But then so often when there's successes or in my case, C's, right? Great, I'll take it, right? Past, it's not a praise, right? It's a, okay, or it's a, thanks God. But, but it's very disproportionate, right? My ask on the front end is so disproportionate to my praise on the back end. And that's, I read that in God's word and I'm convicted. I'm convicted by that. I think it reveals a, a lack of faith of who I really see the gift giver is. And so when things go hard, we go to God, but also when things are good, we're called to go to God. Remember that. Remember what God's word says, even in just verse 13. With our suffering, we take it to God. With our celebrations and our praise, and, and when things are cheerful, we take it to God, we sing our praises to God. Um, we do this really as an action step that all comes from the gospel, right? It's, it's the gospel that allows this, right? The gospel, which is the, the fact that we cannot, we cannot have this relation, we can't approach God apart from the gospel. If we don't have a relationship with our Father through Jesus, then we don't get to approach him with the good and the bad. It's only for his kids that have a relationship, and the gospel is what has allowed that relationship to happen. What Jesus did, the gospel, the death, the, the, the life of Jesus Christ who lived the life I was supposed to live, holy, without sin, the life which I do not live, which I massively come up short on, and so do you, which separates us from God spiritually. He lived it. He died. When he died, he actually took on the wrath and the punishment that I deserve and you deserve, and he took that on and then rose again and now stands at the right hand of God and all who put their faith in Jesus and say, yes, I am saved by grace, not by cleaning myself up, but by grace because Jesus is the only shot I have. And we get Jesus' righteousness, and he got our sin on the cross. And that concept, right, the spiritual word for that, is substitutionary atonement. My sin gets substituted, his righteousness substituted to me, right? And it's this beautiful thing for those who put their faith in Christ. Both of these application points so far, taking, taking our goods and our bad, bad stuff to God, it points to a relationship that the gospel has purchased for us. I, I, what I just said about the gospel, this transaction that happens, my need for God spiritually, I understood that when I was relatively young. I heard that a lot. Many of you have heard that. Your heads nod. You're like, yep, cool. Jesus, put my faith in Jesus. That's what it is. That's what it means to be a Christian. It was probably four or five years of understanding the gospel and that before it clicked for me. This is a relationship. This is a relationship with, with God. And, and that was missing from my, my spiritual application, right? Living out the gospel, that was missing. It was just, yeah, I'm a Christian because I have this transaction. I know that I need, and so I'm gonna claim Jesus, and Jesus is gonna give me his ticket to heaven, and I didn't have a relationship with God for four or five years until it was like, oh, this transaction bought a relationship. That might be you, right? You might know the gospel. You might share the gospel with other people. You might have heard it a thousand times. But all of these application points point to, but what does a, rela a personal relationship look like? Are you walking with God? Are you taking your joys and your victories to God? 
Or is he a category that's like, oh yeah, I need to think about that on a Sunday morning. I need to think about that when I'm really stressed or really things are hard or religious holidays. Or is it a personal relationship that the gospel has, has, has bonded you to for all eternity? We are called to be in this personal relationship. And if you have a personal relationship with, with God, praise God, don't settle, right? We, we don't settle, we don't stop. When I got married to Danielle, after I slept, slept in a morgue floor, after that, right, she had to say yes. Um, after that, right, I don't, I, hopefully, I know I don't, I don't do this perfectly, but my hope is to be a husband who doesn't say, oh, got it, got, got the ring, got the wife, that that relationship continues to grow and continues to mature. And that's just, a, that's a marriage which won't even last into eternity. What, I'm, what we're talking about, what we're seeing in God's word is eternal a relationship that begins now and then goes into eternity. Prioritize a personal relationship with your God who has made a way through Christ. Not because you're churchy enough, not because you're staying away from all the sin and you're doing all the Christian things, but because you've surrendered your life to Christ and your faith is in Jesus, that now you can go to God with all your crap and with all your victories, you can go to God and walk with him. It's huge. It changes everything. It's daily, right? It's this daily thing that we now have available to us with our ups and downs. We bring our requests, but also we don't just bring our requests. We also listen. He, we, we get in his word. He speaks to us, right? We, we pray, we bring our good and our bad, but also we sit and we listen and we see his character and he, he communicates through this active living word. It'll change your life if you just just read five verses a day if, if it's a baby step or, or read some books you've never read before. Grab some commentaries or pull us aside and say, man, this summer I want to do a deep dive in, in, in the Bible in a way I haven't done. To. Can you gather some resources because I, I need some guardrails because I've never done that. Like be in God's word to develop that personal relationship. But here's the other thing. Also be in spiritual community. Be in Christian community to do that. Watch this transition that James makes here. The third question that I said he was going to ask is, is this one. Uh, it's 14 and verse 15. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay, there's a lot here to explain and I'm gonna just give a flyby by some of it, but come and, come and chat with me or, or DM us if you wanna talk, kind of zoom in on more because there's a lot in this, just these couple of verses that can get confusing. But here's what I want us to see. I want us to see how God uses the church community in this action step of faith. So if you're sick, right? If you're sick, then go put yourself before leaders, the elders, go put yourself before the leaders of your church community, right? Don't just do this alone. So we see this action step of faith now is not even just this personal interaction with God. All of a sudden he's saying, hey, another action step of faith, if you really believe, is to submit to leadership, right? To, to take your vulnerable illnesses that, that maybe you're embarrassed about, maybe they weren't socially acceptable in the day, and go and bring them before the elders of the church. Yes, there's deep personal relationship we see in James 5, but also there's deep spiritual community as well, Christian community. So what is James talking about here, right? A prayer service for healing? Yes, it's exactly what he's talking about. Right, we, we see this, the same word he uses here for sick is only used in the New Testament when it's talking about somebody really sick, 
right? Like Lazarus, Jesus' buddy, says he's, it's the same word, he's sick, and he dies two days later, right? It's a word that when it's used, it's like, ooh, man, they are really sick. It's not like they've got a runny nose or they've stubbed their toe. Like this is for people who say, man, there is a real sickness. And he says, man, if that's you, then come. And there was this anointing of oil, which would have been kind of this cultural custom. And then we see this promise that God will use this prayer in the body, he'll use it to raise them up. Doesn't say he will instantly heal them, but he says that, yes, he will raise them up. Now, I'm gonna nerd out for just a second. I'm gonna nerd out for like 90 seconds, all right? There's two categories um, of theology here that this kind of touches on, right? There's the category of cessationists, and there's the category of continuationists, all right? So this is just kind of some nerdy theology stuff. Maybe it's up your alley, and if not, you can check out, and I'll bring you back in here in a second. <clears throat> um, those categories um, are, they're both believers. We're all, we're all agree on the main things, but how they interpret things like this, and specifically the book of Acts, um, the continuationists would say they would have the theological position that like the book of Acts, the way that the New Testament church functions, specifically the apostles, they were given sign gifts, right? Everybody's got spiritual gifts. Those still exist today. You have a spiritual gift if you're in Christ. We could talk about that in a different sermon. But in the early church, there were these sign gifts, and one of them was healing. And when I say healing, it was a gift that was given to an individual apostle. So Peter had it. And in Acts 5, it talks about, I mean, Peter was healing everybody, right? And, and it was given, we believe, because they were authorizing the message of the messenger. Jesus had died, he had ascended to heaven, and he had said, now these apostles, the first generation of the church, spread the word of the gospel. And they were given these sign gifts to show, no, these guys are legit. In, in Acts 5, it talks about Peter walks, and people would pull mats with, with other in, sick individuals in the path where they knew Peter would walk as he's healing people, because even the shadow of the apostle Peter, right, Peter, who's kind of a, a doofus, honestly, chopping off people's ears before Jesus gets arrested and denying Jesus. That Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit and walks a path and his shadow is healing people, right? It's awesome, powerful. I believe it absolutely happened. Continuationists would say, yes, sign gifts still function in that same way. We at Christ Chapel are not continuationists, nerding out a little bit. We are cessationists, which means we believe the sign gifts have ceased to function in that way right? That, that we are no longer entitled to have that gift in this era of the church, but, but they still absolutely exist. Here's what we do believe. God still heals. God still heals. God still heals. You better believe if somebody is sick, we're going to say, we're going to pray for them. We're going to lay hands. God, would you heal them? The difference is we are not entitled to get a yes, Right? I'm not entitled to say, yes, I have this gift now that I can put my hands on people in the hospital and they will be healed the way that it happened in Acts. That was descriptive, but not prescriptive to how we function, right? Have I thoroughly nerded out enough about sign gifts and healing? Okay, good. Who did I lose? No, don't raise your hand. Um, but that's important because here we see this idea and James talks about it and you've got this prayer for healing. We actually have at our church on May 21st, we've got a, a service where the elders after Converge, if you're here um, still in town, come to Converge. It's our 11 o'clock service with the elders after the service who will pray for healing for anyone who wants to. You better believe we're gonna ask God to do big things. I believe I've seen healing, but not because I have any power. 
but I'm going to ask in faith. We are called to do that also. So we as a church believe we are called to do that, to submit under leadership, to ask boldly, to expect that God can do mighty, mighty things and ask for those things. But yes, physical healing, but also for emotional encouragement, for spiritual support, we are called, I want us to walk away from this, leaning on church community when you're hurting. When we see what happens in James chapter five, right here, we see God's command to lean on church community when you're sick and when you're hurting, that you are going to the community of God. Back then, when James wrote this 2,000 years ago, I think he wanted people to have confidence in the kind of community prayer raising up the hurting and the sick. Today, when we read James chapter five, my hope is that you will have confidence in the community of prayer raising up the hurting and sick. Raising them up spiritually, raising them up physically, if God so wills, raising them up emotionally that the body of Christ, Christian community, should be doing that for each other. It's a part of the design of the church. And more than just community being used to bless them in these physical ways, also we see here the community of God is utilized in these spiritual healings. Look at verses 18, uh, 16 through 18. James says, therefore, so on the tail of, of, of this kind of healing service, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. So we see this other application of how community in the church should work. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay, so that's a reference to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah looks at the nation that he's a prophet and a leader of and says, Do we are off the rails, just living in sin, don't care about God, and he believed faith that drove action. He believed it would be better to experience the consequences of God's discipline, a massive drought, the consequences of of God's discipline, rather than to stay in this spiritual drought, right? We need God to wake us up, and so he prayed, God, would you give a drought to help wake up this this nation, right? And, and God did that, right? The power of this prayer. Um, our sin, when left unconfessed, just, you know what? We've got sin in our life and we're just gonna stuff it down and we're just gonna be okay with our sin. Sin left unconfessed, sin left hidden is going to eat away at your relationship with God. Guys, listen. The sin in your life, we've all got it. When we hide it, when we keep it, the temptation, the things that people don't know, God says to bring that into community, to confess that. That doesn't mean publicly you gotta stand up and say, hey, here's what I'm really struggling with, but that God's community is designed to have pockets where you are known well enough that you can confess things. First John says this. He says um, in, verses, in chapter one, verses nine and 10, he says, if we confess our sins, God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We all have sin in our life. And yet we want to keep it hidden. We are called here to lean on church community when you're stuck. When you're stuck in sin, 
when you find, when you feel conviction of sin, that our hope and prayer is that you've got one or two other people that you're walking in community with who are able to show you the grace of Jesus, not, not measure you up against some religious checklist, right? but show you the grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus that also is not okay with that sin and you, vice versa, in their life to walk in accountability and confession. Right? If you're not doing that, it would be like cancer. right? If you had cancer in your life and, and somebody diagnosed it and you say, yeah, I just don't want to look at that. I don't want to be diet. I don't want to know about it. It is still going to eat away at you. Sin is the spiritual cancer in our life that has to be brought into the light confession so that God will kill it and wipe it from us. You see how essential biblical community is? I, I want to land on these verses, the last two verses James brings up. He says this. He says, my brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, again, this community, this brother, sister, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. You see how essential biblical community is? Right? We wander. Remember, there's no neutral. We will drift. Right? Our default setting is to drift away from, from God, right? But if we've allowed ourselves to be known, if you've allowed yourself to be in, yes, a, a real, deep, personal relationship with Jesus, but also genuine biblical community, then when you wander, God's design here, if we really believe that, that takes faith to be that vulnerable with people. But if you really are known in that way, you brothers and sisters who love you can chase you down and bring you back to the only one who can purify us, connected to this this fountain of living water that purifies a bunch of broken sinners like me and like you. And maybe you are that person who knows someone else and you get to be that person to somebody else to say, I love you too much to just let you keep wandering. Not out of judgment and condemnation, but out of the kindness of God, there's something better for you. God's design is so beautiful. He has paid for our sins so we don't have to walk in them any longer. You guys are about to step into summer. And for college students, I've done, done this for a while. And I've watched college students um, go into summer. And, and one of two things oftentimes happens. Again, kind of there's this lack of neutral. Awesome. You grow a ton. You do summer camp or you serve at your church. You get connected or your family's just really life-giving. And it's great. And you come back really refreshed spiritually and challenged and grow and all those things. Take steps towards God. Or during summer, you're exhausted, you guys worked your tail off, you hit the summer, you're exhausted, you just need to veg, and veg turns to plateau, and plateau turns to drift, and you come back in August, and you're hurting, and you're spiritually dry, and you feel empty, and you feel like you just wandered back into things that you, you didn't want to. That last Sunday, you were like, man, I'm gonna be resolved, and then you've drifted back into those things, and you come back just beat up spiritually, from the summer. Um, I want to encourage you. There is grace for all of that. This, this is not a spiritual ladder that you've climbed and in the summer you drop a few notches. This is a relationship, remember? Right? My sons might go through seasons of disobedience, but nothing will change the fact that I'm their father and I love them fully. There's no neutral Remind yourself you're prone to water, but real practically, listen, I want to challenge you to feed your personal relationship with Jesus. Feed your personal relationship with Jesus. Be in God's word. 
Challenge yourself. If you don't know where to start, don't leave here without saying, hey, what resource? What do you got? What if I DM us? What are some ways that I can really feed my personal relationship with Jesus? Find other community too and hold fast the spiritual community. If you don't have spiritual community back where you're going home, fight for it and try to see if you can find it. But if you've got it here, then get in a group text. Hey, can we pray for each other? Here's what I'm worried about going back into. Here's the temptations that are waiting for me back, back when I get home or in this internship I'm doing all summer or whatever it is. Rally that community now because you know the enemy is waiting for you. And you know, we know, we are prone to wander. Um, I, I'm going to end on this. The, uh, the Israelites, they wandered for a while, and there was this thing called an Ebenezer stone that, that happened, that they, that they had. It was whenever they were wandering in the desert, and God parted the Jordan. He parted this, this huge river for them to cross into the promised land. And when they did, they walked on the, the soil, right, which would have been the bed, the floor of the river, and they picked up these stones that would have been at the very bottom of the river normally, but because God parted the water, they grabbed them. And when they got to the other side, the promised land, they would stack those stones. Those stones were called Ebenezer stones because every time they'd see them, they would remember, oh yeah, those stones we got from a river. We had no business making it through. Look what God did. Look how faithful. They were faith-producing reminders. Look what God has done. Look how faithful he is. That faith produces more and more obedience. That obedience bears fruit more and more faithfulness. It grows on and on and on, and that's what it looks like to mature as a believer. And so I want to challenge you, and I want to encourage you. What are Ebenezer stones that you can set for yourself as you go into the summer? What are things that you can do, reminders that you can set? Maybe, you, honestly, you get your iPhone, and you set reminders. Say, Every Thursday morning, Siri is going to remind me about this way I saw God show up or I'm going to put this note, or I'm going to get this thing, or I'm going, to, I'm going to have this group chat, and we're going to remind each other of what God has done to build my faith, knowing that I can keep following him into the future. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have the band go ahead and come on back up, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to give you guys a couple minutes. Right before, before they start singing, I'm just going to let, um, let you guys, they'll play over you. I want you to spend some time asking the question, God, how have I seen you work? How have I seen you show up? And maybe you had a rough year. Maybe you had a rough year and you feel like you've been distant from God. Then I want you to, in this moment, experience and feel God's pleasure as a daughter or a son, right? As someone created by him who wants more of you. Even if this is the best moment of your year spiritually, then I want you to sit for two minutes and dwell on the fact that you have a God who doesn't hold your sins against you, but hung them on a cross 2,000 years ago and says, do you believe and will you follow? And if that's already you, then think back on this year and ask the question, God, how have I seen you? If you want to journal, if you want to type notes in your phone, whatever that looks like between you and the Lord. And then also I want you to ask the question, not just look back, but also God, what do you have next? What's that next little baby step of faith for me? What do you have for me? Let me pray. Father, thank you for how you love us, God. Thank you for your grace. You are, you are more than just a kind Father. You are a gracious King who we have no business being in relationship with, but yet in your kindness you adopted us through Christ for those who are in Christ. 
And so, God, even um, the next couple of minutes, will you meet us in this place in ways that only you can, God? Would your spirit call to our memory ways that we saw you show up, maybe in mundane, silly things, things that we didn't even give you credit for in the, t- in the moment. But, God, this morning you remind us that you were behind those victories. And, God, you were behind, you were with us even in our suffering. The hard things, God, we were reminded that You didn't let us go. You didn't give up on us. So God, remind us. And then God, speak loudly and clearly what might be our next step for your obedience and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.